At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Thanks for tuning in to our series, The Follower's Trail Guide, Navigating the Path of Jesus, where we're asking the question, what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? As we walk through Jesus' farewell discourse to His followers in the book of John, we'll learn how to follow in the steps of Christ as He marks out the way of discipleship for us. If you have your Bible, go ahead and open it up to John 15. Stephanie read this text for us this morning, and that's where we'll be this message, John 15, verses 1 through 11. We're continuing our series called The Follower's Trail Guide, Navigating the Path of Jesus. Jesus has said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So what does that life of discipleship look like? What is that, that way of walking with Jesus, in Jesus, really reveal itself, and Jesus doesn't leave us to figure it out on our own. This teaching in John 13 through 16, he's been showing us very clearly what it means to walk in him as the way. So we're in John 15, verses 1 through 11, um, and we'll, uh, we'll be there this morning. Have you ever had the anxiety of wondering if you were on the right path, if you were on the, on the right trail? Maybe you've been out on a hike or on a walk somewhere, and you started to wonder... Did I get lost? Am I on the right one? Where am I headed? Uh, Ethan and I, this summer, we were able to be in Yosemite National Park for a bit and do some backpacking together and had a great time. It was a a first for us there. And as we were hiking in the uh, backcountry wilderness, there were a few times we started to wonder, does the trail go this way or does it go this way? Where where are we headed? What's the right path? Earlier, Ethan had noticed as we were kind of getting onto the start of the trail that there were some unusual-looking rectangular-shaped carvings in the bark of the ponderosa pines, the big trees that were there. And he asked me, he said, "Dad, what are those? What are those markings about? What's what's that? Why is that there?" I had been in Yosemite before, and so I was a bit familiar with them and know that those knew that those were the trail markers. That was how the rangers had had uh, indicated on the trees that you were on the right trail. They're called trailblazes. And they help you know when you're on the right path. So when we encountered one of those moments where we're on the trail, we're on a, a granite slab somewhere, and we're like, where are we? Is this, is this this way? Is it that way? Or is it, here's ahead. We, we knew instinctively because we knew what the blazes looked like. We knew where to look for the trail. And we, we found it. We made it back safely. Uh, we were on the trail the whole time. We're here. <laughs> it, it'd be nice, though, in life if we had similar markings, right? Simpler trail blazes to help us know if we're on the right path as well. Wouldn't be, wouldn't be helpful if you would just, as you're journeying, say, oh, okay, there it is. Now I know the right way to go. We do have that, frankly. We have it from Jesus' own mouth. His voice, his word for us marks out those trailblazes to help us know when we're on the right path of following him. Let me give you one example. Jesus has said in John 13, so just a, chapters, a few chapters earlier that we've looked at in this series, he says, by this will all people know that you are my disciples. So here's the evidence that everyone can see and tell that you are a follower, a disciple of mine. If you have love for one another, our love for each other in the body of Christ is is an evidence, it's a display, it's a blaze, if you will, of our following Jesus. Where there's no love for one another, the world can rightly question whether we're actually on the way, we're actually following Jesus. Another statement here now in John 15 that we'll come back to, Jesus makes and gives clarity for us of another statement that serves as a bit of a trail marker for us, a a blaze, if you will, 
that we will have evidence of following Him. He says this in verse 8 of chapter 15. My Father is glorified by this, that you produce much fruit and prove to be my disciples. Proving, or producing much fruit, as Jesus puts it, is another sure mark that we are on the way. Or, or to say it another way, disciples of Jesus produce fruitful lives. There is, there's a fruitfulness, much fruit as Jesus puts it, that demonstrate, give evidence to a watching world, that give evidence to us ourselves that we are on the way walking with Jesus. Disciples of Jesus produce fruitful lives. Yet that statement in and of itself draws out a few questions. What does it mean to produce much fruit, as Jesus says it? How do we produce fruit? What, is this, what does this really look like of producing fruit? Jesus' teaching in John 15 moves and unpacks answers to this statement, and he helps us understand what it looks like to have a life lived in the way of Jesus that does actually produce much fruit. How does Jesus shape this life of bearing good fruit in our lives? He uses a metaphor here, a metaphor of vine and branches, in order to call us into two simple actions. So I'm going to take this passage and just divide it into two simple actions that help frame out for us or show us how we are, answers these questions, how we are producing much fruit. What does that look like? How can we know we're on the way that we're following Jesus? So let's, let's dive in together in this. First of all, recognize your purpose. This is where Jesus starts. This is the first simple action that this metaphor helps us get, to recognize our purpose. This action ha- involves having a renewed mind. So, so recognizing your purpose means we need to be shaped by how we think. Our, our, our thought processes, our perspective, our worldview has to change from the ways that we've used to live into, into new ways, the ways that Jesus gives us about who we are and our purpose in this world. This renewed mind comes in understanding the God-given purpose for our lives. What is your purpose in life? What is your God-given purpose for the life, the one life that you have? Jesus employs a metaphor to help us visualize it. He says, uh, back in verse 1, he says this, I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. Now, here's how this metaphor works. Jesus describes himself, first of all, as the quote-unquote true vine. He is the true vine. What Jesus meant by this was to indicate that he was the one, he is the one, through whom God brings life. The, the ancient Israelite people, they perceived themselves and, and used this metaphor to describe their own life and their own relationship with God. Israel thought of themselves and communicated themselves as the true vine in, in Solomon's temple and then in the temple of Jesus' day, up over the temple structure, there was a vine that depicted Israel, looked at it and said, that's us, that's That's us as a people. But yet, God saw that vine very differently. Although the vine was a symbol for the Israelite nation, the hope that the Israelite nation would produce good fruit, bear good fruit for God's glory, never did. When God spoke to Israel about them being a vine, it was to always say, you're you're producing bad fruit. You're dead. You're, you're, You're to be cast into fire. When God speaks of Israel, he declares, it's no good. Jesus, however, replaces Israel. He states himself as the true vine. He is the one who fulfills the role Israel failed at and produces good fruit for God. So Jesus says, don't look to your ethnic heritage, your nationality. Look to me. I'm the one 
through whom life comes. I'm the one who produces good fruit for God. Jesus is the true vine. But then he has another statement there. I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. The gardener in the metaphor is the one who cares for the vitality and the flourishing and the fruitfulness of the vine itself. The gardener works within the vine to make sure that it produces all that is desired. And Jesus talks about what the Father does in verse 2 to bring that flourishing about. So he says, every branch in me that does not produce fruit, he removes. And he prunes every branch that produces fruit so that it will produce more fruit. The Father cultivates the vine. Branches that don't produce fruit, they're removed. They're taken away. They're given space and room for the branches that do produce fruit. And the branches that do produce fruit, they are, they are pruned. They're cut in order to produce more fruit. The cutting produces more and more fruit. You and I may ask, okay, well, here we have the metaphor. Jesus, the vine, the father, the gardener. What does this have to do with you and me? Where do we fit into this? Well, here in the metaphor, Jesus calls you and I, or his followers, he calls us the branches. Look with me at verse 5. Jesus says, I am the vine. He continues the metaphor, and he says, you are the branches. So that gets us to think a little bit about what the Father is doing in cultivating the vine. The vine produces fruit through the branches, and we are the branches. Those that are branches that are unfruitful, taken away, cut off, removed. The branches that are fruitful, they're pruned or cut so that they produce more fruit. Now, now don't overthink the simplicity of this metaphor. This is, this is just simple, ordinary gardening. Uh, Stephanie and I lived in Sonoma County, California, wine country, for eight years. And we, I mean, I just, it was a vivid thing in my mind. When I read this passage, I see those vineyards, and I, I can conceive really clearly what he's talking about here, Jesus is talking about. Any good vintner there would tell you, yeah, that's how it works. You walk through the vineyard, and you see those, those branches that are dry, there's no fruit on them. They're doing nothing. They're dead. And, and the gardeners go through and they take them out. They remove them. They clear space for the healthy branches, the branches that are producing fruit and, and abundance. That's how you care for a good vine. So it's worth asking the question. Let me just pause here as we're interacting with Jesus' words. He's the vine. The Father is the gardener. We are the branches. Fruitful branches are pruned. And cut so they produce more fruit. Unfruitful branches are removed, taken away. What is your life demonstrating? What is your discipleship showing? Is there good fruit? Well, pruning will happen. Is there no fruit? Begs the question, are you even connected to the vine? Now, Jesus says one more thing that's really important for us and for his disciples to catch in verse 3. You see, there's a tension that we feel, and maybe I already brought up the tension for you. I feel it. I ask myself the question, maybe you do as well, am I producing enough fruit? Is it there? Is it enough? Am I in jeopardy of just being removed and cut off? Or, or, or is pruning coming for me? Jesus says this to his disciples. He says, you are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. And Jesus automatically tells his followers, his disciples, whether they're a, 
a branch that's unfruitful or a branch that's fruitful? Because he says to them, you are already clean. You're already in the part, you're already in the segment that is producing fruit, that will produce fruit. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. And you may go, how does that cleanness and that being pruned, fruitful, how does that fit together? The, the, the Greek word here for being clean is the same word used in verse 2 for being pruned. It's not very obvious to see it in the English, but in the Greek it's, it's apparent Jesus has a word play going on. Every branch in me that does not produce fruit, he removes. But every branch that does produce fruit, he cleans so that it will produce more fruit. And you are already clean, might be how you could say it. Jesus has said this very same thing to his disciples already in John 13. Remember, as he was washing their feet, Peter's like, nope, time out, not me. You're not washing my feet. Jesus said, unless I wash you, you can have no part of me. And he's like, well, the whole bath, like everything, head to toe, clean me up. And Jesus said to Peter and to the disciples, you are already clean. But not every one of you, speaking of Judas. So when Jesus is saying you're already clean to his disciples here, in this context of the vine and branches metaphor, he's saying to the disciples, you've already been pruned. You've already been clean. You're about to produce much fruit. John Piper helped say it this way, help me see it. He says, when you prune, you take away something to make what's left more suitable, more fit, more effective. And when you clean, you take something away to make it more suitable, more fit, more effective. So the father prunes, that is, he cleans the branches to make them more suitable for fruit bearing. But keep in mind, you are already cleansed. You are already pruned. You're already suitable or fitted if you have trusted Christ, if you're, you're in Christ, and if you believed and put your faith in Him, you are already ready and set up and cleansed for a life of bearing much fruit. So you don't have to live in the anxiety of will I or will I not. If you put your hope and dependence on Jesus as your Lord and Savior, fruit is going to come. That's why this bearing fruit is a matter of a renewed mind and an understanding of our purpose. If you're in Christ, you're already cleansed already pruned, you can live into the purpose to which you are given. That is to bear fruit. Every branch that is connected to the vine will bear fruit. And as a branch, that purpose is to bear much and increasing fruit. Let me, let me talk to you about it this way. Think about why you live your life. If you consider the many identities that we have and that we possess and that we use, each one of them speaks to a different purpose or function. So if you, if you describe yourself by your vocation or your career, perhaps you're an engineer and you, you just talk about, you see your life as an engineer, your purpose is to build, to develop, to create, to structure, and that sort of thing. Or if you're a nurse, you might speak of your, your life in terms of the purpose to help care for people and to, to help them heal and flourish and recover in those things. In, in relationship to Jesus, Jesus gives his disciples an identity of branches united to him that bear much fruit. Your purpose is to bear fruit. You are united to him for that reason, for that purpose. But you might ask the question, well, what is the fruit that we bear? What does that look like? If the purpose of a follower of Jesus is to bear much fruit and so prove to be his disciples which is what verse 8 says, then let's ask the question, what is the fruit that Jesus is talking about? Maybe a way to answer that is to ask what the purpose of the vine itself is. Remember, Jesus is in this metaphor. Jesus, the true vine. 
He has said his work, his mission is to glorify the Father. So when Judas departed from the meal, chapter 13, to betray Jesus, Jesus said when he had gone out, now is the Son of Man glorified and God is glorified in him. Jesus' mission to glorify God through his work of coming to redeem and to rescue sinners and bring them to his Father and to reconcile us to him. Or when Jesus talks about prayer in John 14, he says, Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Jesus says, when you come to me and you pray and you pray in my name in accordance with my word, I'll do it so that God is glorified. His mission is to glorify the Father. Or I could say it like this, Jesus came as the true Israel to glorify God by laying down his life as a sacrifice to redeem people from every tongue and tribe and nation. Again, as verse 8 points out, our bearing fruit is in step with the purpose of the vine. If the vine's purpose is to glorify the Father, Jesus' purpose to glorify the Father, guess what our purpose is as branches? They're not disconnected. We don't get another one. We get to walk in Jesus' purpose, to glorify God. To answer this question another way, or at least to highlight it another way, is to go to the Westminster Longer Catechism. It asks the question, the very first question of the catechism asks, what is the chief end or highest or ultimate purpose of humanity? Those of you who know the catechism know the answer, to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That's our purpose. That's Jesus' purpose. We're, as branches, united to the vine to glorify God. So if you are living to glorify God in your life, in all of your life, you're bearing fruit. It's showing up. It's coming out because this is what Jesus, the true vine, is doing himself, glorifying the Father. Friends, mark this as the purpose. We have many purposes in our lives. They come up with our identities, care for our families, be good neighbors, be responsible citizens. All these purposes are here. But the highest purpose, the greatest purpose of any of our lives, the one purpose that must rule over all the other purposes of our lives is to glorify God. So make that your chief end. Make that the ambition and the drive of the entirety of your life and put everything else underneath it to glorify God in all that you do. Enjoy Him forever. So this first action that we're talking about here this morning involves our minds being renewed and recognizing our purpose. But the second action comes next, but it may seem a little odd to us. It's a little out of culture, if I could put it that way. Here's why. Because we live in a culture of industrialization. We're a, we're a city, the motor city of machines. Our ethic is to build and produce and to assemble and to sell and to keep the machine rolling. I mean, it's literally Detroit, Right? So you get a little anxious, I get a little anxious when I think about Jesus saying, our purpose is to produce fruit. And if, I, if you're like me at all, I mean, the way I think, I start going, well, how much fruit? How do I produce the fruit? Like, we got to get to the factory and fruit produce a ton. <laughs> and it feels like work, right? Am I ever going to do enough? Am I going to hit the sales quotas? Is God going to be happy with me because I produced enough fruit? And it's just like, keep the machine rolling. Okay, let's go to Jesus' use of the metaphor. Jesus is talking about vines and branches, agriculture, the natural world, not industrial, high-capacity, high-output mechanical processes. Have you ever looked at a fruit tree? 
Pick a tree, apple, peach, whatever like fruit you want, or a vine, and there's grapes on it. Have you ever stared at one of those branches and just seen the branch just striving? I've got an apple, come on! You know, like, that's ridiculous. The branch is connected to the tree, to the source of life, and it just does. How beautiful is that for us to think about how Jesus produces fruit in us? That's the second action, just to remain in Jesus. Stay connected to the vine. Remain in Him. Abide in Him, some translations say it. Go to verse 4. Jesus says, remain in me and I in you. Remain in me. The word there could be dwell or abide, hang out in. Just, just exist in Him and He in, in us, He in you. Jesus looks us in the eyes. He says, stay in me, remain in me, be near me, connect with me. There's the mutual abiding and dwelling here that Jesus offers. Remain in Him and He in you. He keeps extending this metaphor. Verses 4 and 5, Jesus speaks of the importance of remaining in Him. So here's why we should remain in Him. Remain in me and I in you, just as a branch is unable to produce fruit by itself unless it remains in the vine, neither can you unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in Him produces much fruit because you can do nothing without me. Again, over, don't overthink this, okay? Branches that are connected to the vine produce fruit. Branches that remain in the vine are fruitful. It's that simple. A branch that's not connected to the vine, you want to go out and find a, find a stick out in the yard from an apple tree that's not connected to the tree at all, pick it up, say, hey, I'd like an apple. It's not coming, right? This doesn't work. It's so simple here. You can only produce the fruit of glorifying God is displaying you're on the right path. You can only produce that fruit by being in Christ. And to produce that fruit, you must be attached to, remain in, drawing life from the vine itself. To produce fruit, you have to remain in Christ because you can do nothing apart from Him. There is no spiritual flourishing. There is no glorifying of God. There is no exalting Him with all of our lives apart from and disconnected from Jesus. You must remain in Him and He in you. Furthermore, Jesus speaks to the danger of not remaining in him in verse 6. So he, he turns the object to help us see, warns us. If anyone does not remain in me, he's thrown aside like a branch, and he withers. They gather them, throw them into the fire, and they are burned. If you don't remain in him, you're not connected to him. You're not in the vine, and you're like a dry, dead stick that is gathered up and used for firewood, burned up. You might, you might ask, well, is Jesus here teaching that I could lose my salvation? Is he saying as, as a branch, I was connected to him and then I didn't produce any fruit and so obviously he comes and he cuts me off and throws me into the fire? And I want to be very clear here. That would contradict that, that statement that you can lose your salvation would contradict what Jesus has said earlier in the Scriptures. And the Scriptures have no contradiction. Jesus says in John 10, 27 and 28, my sheep hear my voice. And I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, 
and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. And he says in the very next verse, no one will snatch them from the hand of my father. I mean, just catch the emphatic, clear statements. They will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Jesus is resolute that those who come to him, who repent and believe, are secure in his hand forever. He will not lose one of us. But if you think back to the vine and branch metaphor, there are those branches that look connected to the vine. They look like they're a part of it, and they have no life in them. They're not truly connected. Jesus here in John 15 is warning against those who assume that they are in him. They may claim to be connected to him, and they yet never truly bear good fruit. He's speaking about the religious leaders of his day, the Pharisees, the legalists who were like, yes, we're in the vine, we are the vine, and there was no true good fruit. Jesus says, you don't see it, it's not there. They failed to bear good fruit to God, even though they claim to be connected to him. And Jesus says, judgment will come. The only way to bear good fruit is to be connected and to remain in the vine in Jesus. So how do we do that? Well, Jesus' words, his words here are a command as well. And he gives us a way to walk in that command. We must remain in him to produce good fruit. Even though we may claim to be in him, if there is no good fruit, we're not in him. So we must come to him. We must repent. And then he says in verse Seven, remain in me. Remain in me. Verse seven, if you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you want and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you produce much fruit and prove to be my disciples. How do, how do we do this? How do we produce fruit? What does this look like in remaining in him? Well, Jesus gives us two ways. First of all, he says, we remain in him through the word and prayer. Jesus says, if you remain in me and my words remain in you. If you dwell in me and my words dwell, abide, are connected in, my words remain in you, produce life. This involves hearing Jesus' words. To remain in his word means to, to hear his words, to give attentive focus to the scriptures, to hearing the word preached, to reading the word, to studying the word, to meditating on the word. Remaining in Jesus is listening to his word, taking it in in, its, in our lives. The word of God dwells or abides in you. And more than just listening, though, to remain in the word means to believe Jesus' words. A lot of people can hear the scriptures. The religious leaders of Jesus' day had it down. They were the best Bible people of all. I mean, they were stuck to the word, but they didn't believe the word. They didn't affirm it in their lives. They didn't agree that it was true. So we must not be people that just hear the word. We must be people that believe the God of the word. We must believe Jesus himself. Jesus said to these religious leaders in John 5, the father who has sent me has testified about me, but you have not heard his voice at any time and you haven't seen his form. You don't have his word residing in you, abiding in you. Why? Because you don't believe the one he sent. To remain in Jesus, to abide in his word, means that we believe Jesus for who he is. It's paramount. And in believing him, we hear him and his word dwells within us. So I'd ask you this morning, do you believe Jesus? 
Do you believe Jesus is the Word of God incarnate? God who put on flesh, who came to adopt sinners into his family by suffering in our place and dying for our rebellion and our sin? Do you believe Jesus is the only way to the Father, the only way that we are reconciled to God? By believing Jesus, by receiving him, by believing and trusting in him alone, you're brought into his family. Friend, do you believe, Jesus said, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Have you turned from your sin, seen the the wayward way that you were walking, and seen the gift of God in Jesus Christ, who humbled himself, loved you, came for you, laid down his life, was raised to life again to reconcile you to God, bring you into his family, to have you experience the full smile of his father saying, welcome my child. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, I call you to believe in Christ right now, to turn from your sin and place your faith in Christ alone to save you. We remain in Christ through the word and prayer. And prayer is that second element. We commune and relate with God. Remaining in Jesus means that we remain or dwell in his word. Jesus said, you are already clean through the word that I have spoken to you. And the word shapes us to pray the things that are in alignment with the will of God. And when we get to the end of verse 7, he says, if you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you will and it will be done for you. Okay, don't divorce that second line from the first part, right? Jesus is not saying, ask whatever you want, and I'll do it. So, like, Lord, again, I'm asking for that cool car. You know, like, where's the big mansion? I'd like a private island all to myself, and you're obligated to give it because that's what's said right here. Or, Jesus, I I want a stress-free life for the here on out. Jesus says, remain in my words so that my words shape your prayers. My words form your prayers. That's where your words, our words, our prayers become in alignment with God's words and God's will and God's ways. So instead of praying for the stress-free life, for the fancy car, for whatever the material thing is, when we remain in his word, the word shapes our prayers to where we begin to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Remain in his word. We remain in Jesus by remaining in his word and in prayer. And this demonstrates, this is where fruitfulness comes. We glorify God and produce much fruit and demonstrate we are his disciples. So we remain in in Jesus in the word and prayer. And then secondly, through love and obedience. We remain in Jesus through love and obedience. Verses 9 and 10, Jesus states a reality. Here's Here's a truth for the disciple, the follower of Jesus. As the Father has loved me, so I have also loved you. Remain in my love. Okay, here it is, black and white, in stone on the paper, if you will. The Father has loved me. I love you. Hang out in that love. That is to say, you, in Christ Jesus, are fully loved. Think about the way the Father has loved the Son. The Father has loved the Son eternally, fully, exhaustively. There's no diminishment, no no millimeter of backing away from full, complete, exhaustive love from the Father towards the Son. 
The communion of their love is perfect. And Jesus says, as the Father has loved me in the same way or in the same likeness as the Father has loved me, guess what? So I have loved you completely, totally, exhaustively. There is not one area where Jesus steps back and goes, whoa, love is going to diminish here. He leans in, Jesus said, having, loving his own, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them exhaustively, completely, to the end. So friend, verse 9, as the fathers love me, I also love you. Remain, abide, dwell, hang out in his love. In Christ, you need to hear this this morning, you are loved by God fully, completely. You need to get big doses of this reminder in your heart. In Christ, God loves you. I know it's true in some Christian circles, it's common to remind ourselves of our depravity and sin. We, we know we are miserable sinners. And it's, it's often said that. We just want to feel as bad as we can because of how horrible we are. And maybe I've been guilty of preaching that way and bringing that heavy load on you too much, saying you're all idiots a whole lot. You are. We're miserable sinners. We're the worst. We're far worse than we know. But the thing that keeps us walking in Christ, that motivates us to get up off the ground when we sin, that encourages us, that causes us to flourish and brings about true fruit of obedience in our life, is to know that you are loved by God. You cannot be more loved than you are right now. You, cannot, you are more loved right now than you can possibly imagine or know. And follower of Jesus Christian it's okay to say that. It's okay to tell yourself, I am loved by God because of what Christ has done. It's okay to tell your life group, brothers and sisters, we're loved by Jesus. It's okay to say to fellow Christians, in Christ, you're fully loved, no matter how you've lived this week, no matter what you've done. Jesus says, hang out, abide in my love. We've got to get that in our hearts. And as you remember that reality, that, that you are loved, fully loved, it helps us in the way in which we experience and display that love through obedience. Jesus says in verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. Now note the order here, okay? This is critical. You are loved. That is the place we start from. And so because we are loved, we keep his commandments. It's not the other way around that the world says. That every other religion in the world says, you keep his commandments, you obey, you do the right things, you earn, you achieve, you gain, and then he displays his love. Then he pours out love. God is not the cosmic father standing with his arms crossed in heaven, hoping that you earn enough, and then he might say, I'm kind of okay with you. He's the God who says, I love you. And that just frees, like he just loves us for the mess that we are. God displayed his love for us in this while we, were, while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. And then he shapes our lives. And obedience flows out of that. If you remember you are loved, it makes it so much easier to say, okay, now I can walk with him. Now I can obey him. Jesus is the model for us. Fully loved and secured by the Father, so he obeys. We look to Jesus and we see him Think about this. When you know you're secure, know you're loved, you know the person you're living to please is positively for you, 
How much easier is it for you to do what they ask? That's the gospel order. So make it your aim to please him because he loves you. That's how you remain in Christ, from love to obedience. We remain in him through the word and prayer, through love and obedience. So let me ask this as I wrap up and we're out of time here. Friends, I just have to ask you as a, as a congregation, as a family, if you're watching online this morning, you in this moment as well, are you in Christ? Are you in the vine? Bearing good fruit? Jesus is for you. He's laid this out in his word for our good. He says in verse 11, I tell you these things not to put an oppressive yoke on you, not to bury you in the ground with obligation and duty and responsibility. I have told you these things so that my joy, his joy of being the happiest being in all the universe, my joy may be in you and your joy might be complete, full. Jesus wants you to have maximum and ultimate joy, fullness of life, supreme happiness to the uttermost. He wants to give this gift to you. So are are you in him? Believe him. Receive him. Come to him as Lord and Savior and put your life in his hands. If you're in him, are you walking on the right path? Are you living to glorify God, bearing fruit, proving to be his disciple? He says this for your joy and gladness. So here's where we'll conclude. Look at your life. Where are you walking right now? Do you see the trailblaze, the evidence, the fruitfulness of being in Christ? Is that there? Disciples of Jesus produce fruitful lives. Thank you for joining us as we study God's Word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head over to woodsidebible.org forward slash connect to introduce yourself to us today.